Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. When we read the resurrection account of Jesus Christ, and we harmonize the four Gospels, there's a sequence of events in order. And this is the first event. Women coming to the tomb early in the morning at the break of dawn, the angel being there, the tomb already rolled away, Jesus already risen. It is the first event. In fact, there's at least 12 different events, and you can make, you can pretty much put forth that there's 15 as if you stretch out and divide some of those events in the order of the post-resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here we have the very first event, that the women came there collectively. They're the first ones there. And they get this phrase, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, verse 6, who was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So we are reminded yet again that we serve a risen Savior. And it's worth noting the contrast of our faith compared to the philosophies of men and world religions. Because no other world religion claims to serve a risen Savior. No human philosophy claims to believe in and serve a risen Savior. And even the uh, Darwinistic worldviews, communistic worldviews, and again, different political worldviews that fallen men come up with, none of them are built around a risen Savior, the risen King of Kings. He was the King of the Jews on the cross, and as the risen one, he's the King of Kings. He's the King. He's referred to the King three different times in the Bible in three different contexts as the King, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, and the King of Kings. And as we gather here tonight, we're singing these songs with Jack and Toby. Yet again, we're reminded that we're not worshiping a dead person. On my walk with my wife this Sunday, we like to take those Sunday walks on the boardwalk, the bike path there in Huntington. And walking along, you see people parking on PCH. And as we're getting into summer, there's more activity. Those parking spots are pretty much gone by about 10. So it's happening. But I couldn't help but notice walking by a car with a Buddha statue on the dashboard. And my thought was, he's dead. He's dead. And we don't need a Jesus statue because (laughs) he's he's living, he's risen. But I, I just thought like, it's sad because that's a philosophy of men. And, and someone's driving on a car with uh, a rather large round man sitting on their dashboard. And somehow that's their worldview of life and their philosophy of life strong enough that they've got him on their dashboard and they look at him everywhere they drive. He's dead. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And he said, I go to prepare a place before you in my Father's house. And we're just reminded tonight on that phrase, he is risen. And we talk about who says it too, the angel. This, of course, is an angel. And we're told he's a mighty angel. And just think of all the angels, all the angels. Gabriel gets to pronounce the virgin birth and those things. But all the angels, 
the angel that's there when Jesus is resurrected in the tomb for humanity when the women come. Just the, his presence. He's coming from the throne room of God. He's coming with the authority of God. He's coming declaring the fulfillment of the promises and the scriptures of God of the Old Testament. And so these women walk in. It's like this is an amazing scene. And what Hollywood movie could ever reproduce it correctly to really bring about the reverence of the moment? Because, of course, an angel's of another dimension in our dimension. So it's, it's, it's multidimensional at that moment. And eternity's like in the room. And they go in the empty tomb. They see Jesus isn't there. And they go their way in amazement and trembling, we're told. So Jesus is risen. We think about everything we face. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is always with us. Lord, I'm with you always till the end of the age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Whatever we face, the risen Savior for the follower of Christ is by our side to see us through it. We never, ever face it alone. We don't have to run out to our car and look at a statue of a chubby man from bygone centuries who had a philosophy of somehow of something that man could attain, which he can't attain anyways. But we have a living hope in a risen Savior, a hope that's an anchor to the soul. In fact, we're told in the New Testament that his, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was raised for our hope and justification. He justifies us through our faith in him. The resurrection affirms that. But he's also raised for our hope, and that hope is an anchor to the soul. So yet again, in the middle of the year right now, tonight in this text, we're reminded that we have a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're told in 1 Peter. So we rejoice. We're not doing religion. We're not doing politics. We're not doing a philosophy class in college or something that is meaningless, uh, not to take away from people who are sincere and stuff like that, but we're, we're here. We're worshiping Jesus. This distinction of who we are. Every time we gather like this and we sing songs like we sing and have communion like we're having tonight, we're aligning ourselves with the body of Christ universally. We're joining ourselves with the believers and the saints all over the planet tonight, to this day, who are, are seeking the Lord. How many Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people this day, men, women, elderly, children, and all the events and circumstances of life are crying out and walking with Jesus Christ today, the living Savior who we serve and join with them this night. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible, joyful thing to, to serve and know the risen Savior. And the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a two-dimensional piece of paper, if you will, with ink on it, but that the risen Savior is affirmed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, that we have this hope. He is not here, he's risen, and so he walks in the midst of his church. He's there by our side in the morning. He was there with all those saints before, so not only do we join those saints around the planet tonight, at this time, who are praising and worshiping Jesus in anticipation of his coming kingdom, but we are joined to all those saints who came before us, who love the Lord, who who live lives of holiness and righteousness for the Lord, lives with mistakes and lives with victory, lives with triumphs and lives with failures, just the whole human experience, but they lived it with faith. And they came before us. And now we're here joining them. 
So when you read about George Mueller of Bristol or Hudson Taylor of China and the Inland China Mission or Amy Carmichael of India or Elizabeth Elliott in Ecuador and all, it's like we are joined with them because we serve a risen Savior. He's not here. He's risen. We're not joined to vain philosophies. We're not like the Communist Party somewhere where we're yoked with Trotsky and Lenin and Stalin and those guys or, or Marx and these guys. We're, we're not yoked to Marx or Darwin. We're yoked to Jesus Christ the center of the universe. We serve the risen Savior. This is our life on the best day. This is our life on the worst day. This is our life on the triumphant day. This is our life on the day of fear. He is risen, and he's with us. Now, go tell the disciples. And Peter. You like the bonus for Peter? You know, like the rooster crowing twice, Peter? Yeah. Peter, you know, like when they came with the news, and the other gospels tell us about this, they came, the women went to Peter and John, and he's risen, and and they didn't believe it. But Peter and John ran. And of course, John got there first, according to John's gospel account, but stopped. Peter went right into the empty tomb. There was hope for Peter, and there was a, a calling on Peter's life. And so, in the chronology of resurrection events, this is the first one. The second one is Peter and John running to the tomb. The third one is our next text tonight. So our application is just as simple. We are never alone. He's risen, and he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. He's by our side, and he's got us right until he comes for us. A risen Savior is coming for us when we breathe our last. We're not stepping into eternity on the dead bones of the philosophies of fallen men and women devoid of the risen Savior. Verse 9. Now when he rose early... On the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared to another, in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So verse 9 is account number 3 in the order, Mary Magdalene. So she was the first one to see Jesus, and she saw him personally, and again, that accounts for us in the other Gospels in the chronological order. And I just want to point out some words that get my attention as we go over these verses. In verse 9, he appeared. Verse 12, after that, he appeared in another form. Later, he appeared, verse 14, to the eleven as they sat at the table. And we know in that appearance, he could be in the room and out of the room. He appeared and disappeared, if you will. We also see that in verse 11, they did not believe the report of the first appearance. We see in verse 13, they did not believe them either. And then in verse 14, we see Jesus rebuking them for their unbelief. And we're told, verse 14, that they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Let's talk about these appearances because we know there is a chronological record of Jesus's appearances to various people. We know that according to 1 Corinthians, is seen by 500 at one time, one of his last appearances before ascending into heaven with the apostles. 
So these, these records are there for us in harmonizing the scriptures. Reality of the resurrection, there is no end. I mean, people, apologists have been writing books for centuries about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ by any standard is the most provable event in human history. And again, the greatest testimony of Jesus being risen is the Spirit confirming that in our hearts when we respond to the Holy Spirit drawing us to Christ and that he lives in us. And there's plenty of hymns that have been written over the ages that we know him because he lives within us and, and we know that experience with him. But he appeared to them. So these, these appearances are Jesus in his physical, literally his physical body, but it's a glorified body. And we know that Corinthians tells us there's a, a mortal body and there's an immortal body. There's an earthly body, there's a heavenly body. There's a corruptible body, there's an incorruptible body. And we know that his body in a glorified body. And we know that he was recognizable when he appeared, but he was also, he hid himself from the two on the road to Emmaus until the breaking of bread, and then he was revealed to them as he had expounded the scriptures to them. And so there's some mysteries, of course, to Jesus's physical resurrection and his appearances and the manifestation of his appearances, but there can be no doubt that Jesus Christ who was crucified on the cross, is Jesus Christ risen, Jesus of Nazareth. And as he said to Thomas, doubt no more, put your hands in the very scars of my hands. Touch for yourself and see, be not unbelieving. And Thomas, of course, said that famous phrase in John's gospel, my Lord and my God, and he worshiped him. So Jesus accepted the worship, which he could only do if he's God, and he didn't reprove him for calling him God. And of course, Jesus is God. He's the son of God. So Thomas says, my Lord and my God, when he sees the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus ate food with them, with his resurrected physical body, but yet it's a glorified body. There's such a mystery to it, and it's just one of these things that we believe and accept by faith, knowing that when we step into eternity, we're going to have glorified bodies, and if you ever think about, like, what's your glorified body going to be like, and you, you start to meditate on things, I'm pretty certain of a couple things about those, these glorified bodies. One, they don't look like, I don't believe they look like the end of your temporal body. In other words, your last vision of someone, Billy Graham being 99, I don't picture Billy Graham looking like Billy Graham 99 in the Billy Graham documentary. That's not how I picture Billy, because that's, that's the corruptible, that's the, that's the old and obsolete that's fading away. I mean, if anything, I picture young Billy in his 30s when he's like, you know, just... Billy working for Youth for Christ in the 40s, right? Like, just I picture Billy like that. But even so, it won't be like that. I, th- I think of all the children that have died, all the infants that have died in human history, all the unwanted infants that have been cast aside through infanticide. I think of babies that have just died in general, all the stillborns, all the young children that die. And, and I think when we get to heaven, I don't think we see a one-year-old or a newborn or a two-year-old. That's not what we're going to see. I believe when we get to heaven that we're going to see everyone in their complete glory. Because, again, I base this upon the scriptures. When it's not yet revealed what we'll be like, but when he comes in his glory, we will be with him in his glory. We will have the same type of glory as Jesus. We're told that in Colossians 3 and 1 John 3. And it's implied in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. So when we step into eternity, I believe we will have based upon the scriptures, that we will know our loved ones. I I believe there's reason to believe that. And we'll, like Jesus had this glorified body, we'll have a glorified body. And all of time is a preparation for the plans of eternity. So what this earthly body, this treasure in earthen vessels, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians says, it's not in vain. This earthly body is not in vain, but it's dust. From the dust we came, the dust will return. But 
the particles of this dust is part of the resurrection. And it's like only God who is the potter and we're the clay could make Adam once and make Eve from Adam and all the descendants of Adam and Eve from the earth. And we go back to the earth, to the dust. And yet in the last time at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ rise and there's glorified bodies. And it's like, God is so awesome. When you think of the microscopic world and the macro world of outer space and you saw like, he's got it. So it all comes back to this, that as Jesus appeared in glory in his glorified body, we will have glorified bodies. And that's something to look forward to. Or as I say, we're not coming from our glory. We're going to our glory. We're going to our glory. Our, our best is in front of us with glory. And it's a hope. Again, it's a hope that's an anger to the soul that Hebrews tells us. But there is a little bit of a warning here that he reproved their unbelief. And before we move on to this last part of the text, I want to say this. God forbid that we would stand before the Lord and be reproved for unbelief. Let me say that again. God forbid that any of us who confess Jesus as Lord would stand before the Lord and have him reprove us for unbelief. We want to be women and men, young people and old people of any generation, that we wake up with an expectation of God who can do all things with God. Nothing nothing is impossible. We want to wake up with expectation that God who says of himself, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is light in whom is no darkness at all, that he is faithful in every generation. And whatever we could read about him doing just practically, wonderfully, beautifully, and supernaturally in the word of God or in church history, we should wake up believing that that's what he wants to do in our life as we wake up today and tomorrow and move on to the next thing. Why would we ever want to say that somehow God is a fading glory? That somehow he's subject to the law of entropy, like the universe, he's winding down. Because the universe is winding down because of sin. The Bible makes that very clear. So entropy is that scientific law that's over the universe. So as the universe is expanding, it's losing energy. It's becoming less of what it is as it expands. It's, it's going to tap out. Our sun is what? It's provable. It's tapping out. It's losing energy. That's time, space, and matter. But God is outside of time, space, and matter. And the reason all time, space, and matters is under entropy is because of sin, the original sin. And Romans makes that very clear. The entire universe groans. The comets, the asteroids, they all groan for the redemption of the purchased possession, which the glory of is humanity in glory with Christ and the new heaven and the new earth where there's no more tears or sorrows. But God doesn't change just because like sin enters the universe. You know, you think about when Adam and Eve rebelled there in the garden. In the supernatural, in the spiritual realm, what happened? In another dimension, like a blackness went out over the entire universe. It affects everything. It affected everything. Everything. The animal kingdom, the microscopic kingdom, viruses, everything. Death entered through one. In Adam, all sin. And sin entered through Adam. And all died because of Adam. Adam is the author of death, not God. Adam is, by a volitional choice, as the head of our race. And this is, this is the redemptive process of those things. And so, though all that decay is on around us, we don't attribute that to God. Why would we? He's outside of it. He gave us self-determination because God is love and love has a choice. And so all creation groans, Romans 8. We cry out and we groan and we don't even know what to pray, Romans 8. But the redemption's coming 
for this treasure is in earthen vessels. And we do not want to be women of unbelief, men of unbelief, but we, with Christ in us, the hope of glory, we want to be people of great expectation. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're a triumphant church. We may not be the Corinthian church. We may not be the Thessalonian church. We may not be the Ephesian church. And we may not even be the Philadelphia church, which would be a great church to be, by the way, because God opens a door that no man closes for them, right? Yeah, Revelation chapter 3. But we're this church, and we're part of the universal church, and this is our time, and this is our generation, and we're part of that church that's every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. That's who we are. And he's grabbing both genders, all ethnicities, even right now, a giant harvest across this planet through 24 time zones, and we're alive to be a part of it in our generation. He was working before us. We step in eternity. He's working after us. But we are the church, and the cross is triumph. The, the empty tomb is triumph. Ours is the victory. We don't hope for victory, right? But we, we come from victory. It's a total victory. So whatever our mundane life would seem to bring us, or an exciting day might bring us, or a challenging day, or a fearful day, or a tragic day, or a victorious day, whatever it might bring us, we've already got the victory. We don't get the victory at the end of the day. We start the victory. We start the day with the victory because Christ is Lord of all, and he's the author and the finisher of our faith. And the, he didn't die on the cross and send the Holy Spirit for us, the church, the universal church, to be defeated and beaten down. And he didn't die on the cross for you to be defeated and beaten down. And he didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave so we could wake up in fear and trembling of men and demons, but that we'd wake up in faith and confidence of the king being over all things, having our back, and being able to do all that he promised in and through us according to his will and purposes. We want to be women of belief. We want to be men of belief. We want to be men of faith and women of faith. And we want to go for it. We want to be like William Carey, attempt great things for God, expect great things for God. And yeah, it gets messy, this journey, but by golly, when it's all said and done, you leave a legacy of faith. That's who we want to be. We want to just be, wake up with confidence that God is on the throne and he's got this. We don't want to be people of unbelief. And the opposite would be to be women and men of faith and great expectation. And as Jeremy and I have said more than once to each other, if God doesn't do something great, let it not be because we didn't believe he couldn't or, or wasn't capable. He's capable. And the Bible's just filled with stories of him, his capabilities, bringing about the practical the moral, the glorious, and the supernatural. And that's who we serve. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God forbid he ever approve us for unbelief. But what could be better than to step into eternity when you breathe your last and have him look at you and go like, you are my daughter and you always believed in me and you trusted in my promises. How good is that going to sound coming into heaven? You are my son. When all others doubted, you believed. You're like Lucy in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You knew Aslan was there, and whether Sister Susan believed or not didn't matter. You never gave up believing that Aslan was there, and he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is there. Or as Aslan said to Lucy, even if they don't, because Lucy said they're not going to believe me, and he says that's for them to determine, but even if they don't, I need you to believe me, and you go. That's who we are. We go. Not because everyone goes. We go because Aslan, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus calls us, and we go, and he's got the victory. Don't want to hear people whining about how difficult life is these days. It's always difficult. You imagine how difficult it was during the medieval ages? Try being a Protestant around 1500 in Europe. It's difficult. It's never easy. Life's never been easy. You know what I'm saying? It's never been easy. I mean, Jacob said, my life has been just a train wreck. And then the end of his life, he goes, but God's been faithful. 
When he came to Pharaoh, all few and evil have been my days, but then 19 years later, whatever, he goes, you know what? God is faithful. Bring the kids here. I'm going to bless them and step into eternity. That you can get to the end and, and just know that God was good and you trusted him. We want to believe God for great things. We want to be a people of expectation. We want people coming to this church and coming into your life and where your life goes, that what you're projecting is faith and confidence and optimism for the kingdom of God because Jesus is the king and he reigns. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen. So there's the great commission by Mark's account, a little different than Luke's and Matthew's. So he said, go into all the world. And that is the great commission to go into all the world. And I just love to read about, I went out to my shed where I have all my books that I've kept. And almost all the books I've kept are biographies. I just, the biographies. I'm like, hmm, do I want to spend July with Eric Little in China? Hmm, or do I want to spend it with... George Mueller in Bristol, right? Like, I, I, I like to read about the men and the women, or Amy Carmichael, Chance to Die, written by Elizabeth Elliot. I'm like, wow, like these are three great books because the George Mueller book's an autobiography, so it's his words. The 92-year-old who fed thousands of kids daily with faith. I'm like, mm, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, Spiritual Secret, whoa. Eric Little, amazing story, Traits of Fire, right? Eric Little, the Olympian. Or Amy Carmichael, Chance to Die. See, usually I'm like, when you see spiritual books in the airport, I say this. It's like, your best life now. Seven things that will make you a successful Christian. You don't see Amy Carmichael's A Chance to Die. Like, that's really the book you need to read, though. Right? Because, you know, unless you pick up your cross and follow me daily. But I was like, but normally when I like see Amy Carmichael's A Chance to Die, I'm like, man, that's a heavy book. But I was looking at the table like, man, I think I like that book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, because Hannah read that book. Hannah did a book report on that book when she was in eighth grade, my daughter Hannah. And she's doing pretty good with the Lord. And I was like, you know, that's... Uh, and Elizabeth Elliot wrote the book about Amy Carmichael. I'm like, oh, go see you maybe in August. Yeah, well, maybe August. But I think we want to do George Mueller's own words, like how he fed thousands of kids every day by faith. I want to I I I think about prayer and moving mountains with prayer. So... George Mueller, you're in. July, you're in. Like a coach. Hey, Mueller, you're in. Let's go. We're going to spend a month with George Mueller because I just finished a month, with, two months with Elizabeth Elliot. Suffering and glad surrender. I spent two months with Elizabeth Elliot. She's like my spiritual mom. She's been with the king for a while. Like, man, good stuff. You know, 75% of Americans don't read a book through the year. More than three-fourths of Americans don't even read one book a year. They just... Dumbed down and fade, going down the river. I hope you read books, and I hope you read spiritual books that build up your faith. Certainly, I hope you read the book, <laughs> you know, the Word of God. But like, yeah, like that's what we do. Like, it's you add, you know, faith comes with our hearing, hearing by the Word of God, and we, we want to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. And when you read about women and men who have given so much, and you, you're inspired, you're encouraged, because ours is the Great Commission: go into the world. That doesn't exclude any country. 
Go into the world. I love it, the Great Commission. And preach the gospel to every creature. Pretty much that means you don't rule out anybody as being unredeemable. If someone's unredeemable, that's between them and the Lord. <laughs> Ours is believing the best for everybody that we could possibly share with. We need it. Every creature means like we don't determine like, no, that person would never get saved. Or like, I don't know, like every person, every creature. And they who believe and baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. People often misconstrue verse 16. Is, this is salvation through baptism. That's not true because that would totally uh, eradicate or negate a good portion of the New Testament. And in fact, the verse interprets itself. Believes and baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So it's the believing that's the saving, not the water baptism. But of course, as you've been going through on Saturday night with we're dead in Christ, we've been talking about water baptism and its symbolism and its significance to understanding the Christian walk. So we certainly want to be baptized the moment we're saved. That's what you see in the book of Acts. And we don't want to delay that. We want it because God, even as a communion elements, God speaks to us things physically about eternity. Water baptism, he speaks to us physically about eternity. And again, if anyone here has faith in Jesus, if you've not been water baptized, we want to baptize you this summer. Okay, so let us know. And it's important to be baptized. But going in the water doesn't save anybody. Uh, being born again in the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. He who believes is saved. He who does not believe is condemned. It's faith and unbelief. That's, that's clearly taught throughout the scripture. So people take certain verses and they, they build a faulty theology upon them. It's too bad because that would be Jesus plus baptism. But that's not salvation. It's Jesus. Salvation is the Savior. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, then they were baptized, the Philippian jailer's household, but it was the believing that saved him, not the baptism. And then these signs will follow. Now, these are the signs. We see the sign of the viper biting Paul in the book of Acts in chapter 28, the last chapter of Acts. And then from which comes all the cults, you know, with the snake handling, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, particularly popular in the deep south, right? Uh, speaking in tongues, yeah. So we that's a, a gift of the spirit, tongues. And there's also the... The topic of tongues is, is often divided between a heavenly language of tongues versus an earthly language because sometimes you see tongues as an understandable earthly dialect. We see that in the book of Acts. But other times it would imply by 1 Corinthians that tongues is a heavenly language that doesn't uh, necessarily need to be understood by the one praying. But if others are around, then it needs to be interpreted and, and God can give that interpretation. So it's supernatural. Supernatural. But the greatest supernatural thing is you not being you in Adam, but you being you in, in Jesus. Amen. Isn't that the greatest supernatural? You not being selfish, but you being selfless. You not being prideful, but you being humble. You not being self-centered, but other-centered. That's the greatest supernatural there is. Because as it says in 1 Corinthians, you can speak with tongues of men and angels and move mountains and feed all the poor and burn your body. But if you don't love, you got nothing. Because love never fails. So loving people, forgiving people, that's the greatest, that's the greatest sign of the supernatural is that you're not the center of the universe, but Christ is, and your life is poured out to the blessing and the benefit of others. That's the greatest sign. There, I mean, there's all kinds of good signs, but people, don't get, people can get saved through the supernatural signs. We see that. But how people really get saved is when you're not the same person a year later that you were the last year. When you're, Your last year in Adam and your first year in Christ, that's the best sign. And the longer you have that walk and that credibility, the more people are drawn to the Lord and the more likely they're willing to listen to it. People get saved through relationships. All those Billy Graham movies in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s always had those storylines where people get saved at a Billy Graham crusade and it focuses on their personal lives and how it affected them at work and with their family. And the, and the fruit is going forward. 
that you're not left to yourself in Adam and Eve, but that you're born again through Jesus Christ and you're the daughter of the king and the son of the king and joint heirs with Christ. And we, we really are manifesting the new nature. The ultimate compliment, people, if they knew you before Christ, if you have such a testimony, and then after it's like, wow, you are a, just completely different. Like, that's wonderful. That's what we want. That's the great supernatural. But there are signs and wonders that follow those who believe. Verse 17, there are signs that follow those who believe. And I want to believe God for signs that follow those who believe. And I want to believe God for the supernatural, and I want to see him do great things. So as I look at the future for my life and your life, I want to believe him for the supernatural, to win people to Christ. The objective is always to obey the call of God in our lives and through that obedience to win people for Christ. The supernatural is to help us in obedience and to win people for Christ. The signs and wonders are to help us in obedience and to win people to Jesus Christ. The supernatural is not for a self-serving circumstance or a self-gratifying circumstance per se. It is losing our life in the supernatural so we can obey the Lord the way we're intended to, and is that Christ would come from us in that supernatural and be glorified, and people could be one to him through that. So the supernatural isn't about, like, the power of Adam. The supernatural is about the living Savior being demonstrated through our lives and winning people to him. Verse 19, he ascends into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, we serve a risen Savior. He ever lives and intercedes for us, we're told in the New Testament. And verse 20, they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So Jesus is ascended in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's where he's at. He's our great high priest, Hebrews tells us, and he ever lives to intercede for us before the Father at the right hand of the Father. And he's there to come to our aid in the personal human experiences. And he's there to guide us and lead us. The book of Acts really, the first 30 years of the New Testament church, the early church, is... Jesus directing things from the throne room by the Holy Spirit through the lives of the believers. It's just supernatural. And you see that, like Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go to the Father. And when I go, I'll send you the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and he will guide you in all things. So what is the book of Acts? It's Peter being baptized in the Spirit, preaching with authority to the very people that he's afraid of and people getting saved. It's the the signs and wonders. It's people sharing one another and looking out for one another and caring about one another, having all things in common, as I said, not by governmental uh, compulsion like communism, but by faith-based self-determination. If you win the heart, you you win the worldview. If you don't win the heart, the worldview doesn't mean anything. If you win the heart for Christ, he changes the heart and he gives them a a, a kingdom worldview. But if you don't win the heart, you know, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, that's who they are. That's what they do. And they're not going to change their thinking without a transformation. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit. So the things that we value of life in humanity and and giving and sharing, they don't naturally come to the sons and daughters of, of Adam and Eve. Though they would like to think they're very benevolent, they're not. Because the devil said it best, skin for skin, all that a human has, they'll give to save their life. And they will. And even if you did that, it doesn't matter. Because the real love is in Jesus Christ. And like I've said before, you can dig a well and give people water, but I'd rather dig a well and give them water and living water. Because if I just give them water and go away, they're still perishing and going to hell. If I give them water and give them the living water, then they're going to be in the kingdom like Jesus with the woman at the well in Samaria. We can feed people like the 5,000, but we need to tell them who the bread of life is. It is what it is. They went out. 
They were changed. They, Jesus was directing things from the throne room. When Stephen, you know, look at Stephen. It's incredible when you think about this because this connects to the early church. But Stephen, what's, what's Stephen's introduction? He's the martyr, right? We always remember the first Christian to die on record, if you will, in the book of Acts. And, but he's a martyr because he died for his faith. But he takes a menial job. He's serving tables. Now, that he was a brilliant man is unquestionable because the wisdom by which he refuted people in dialogue and debate, he was untouchable. He was an untouchable lawyer. He was a thousand and oh. He never lost a dispute. They could not handle him. He was God's man, and he began that calling with, with a minimum wage job, serving tables and bringing peace where the first set of disorder and chaos was in the early church. He brought peace between the ethnic distinctions between the Hebrews and the Hellenist Hebrews. He served tables. And he was a spirit-filled man, of course. He is full of wisdom, good reputation, the qualification for all seven. And then Stephen, the signs and wonders came upon him. He was a brilliant man. In other words, he didn't say, I'm above this job of serving tables. I'm the smartest person in the room. He didn't say that. I could win any debate. I should be the highest paid lawyer in Orange County. He didn't say that. I'm going to serve tables at the Food and Fellowship. That's what he made himself available to. And that's what he did. Because that's how Jesus guided him. Because Jesus is the king and Stephen was guided. And that's what he did. That's who he was. And then when it's time to engage, he engaged. Signs and wonders, it was there for him when it was needed to be there. And his last day, the word of God with all boldness, no fear of man. And what do we see? We see him step into eternity, forgiving those who are killing him, and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. We're told he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's standing at the right hand of the Father, and Stephen sees him. Stephen was under the authority and the direction of King Jesus through his entire life, serving tables, refuting falsehood, and doing signs and wonders, and preaching the gospel in its fullness in his last breath. Jesus Christ is the king over his church, and he was directing his church even there in that text as he's directing this church on this day. We serve the king. He is the king. He's the risen savior at the right hand of the father, and we're his church, and it's up to each one of us to seek him personally for the things he wants to do in and through our lives. And it's up to each one of us personally to seek him and be open to the signs and wonders he wants to do in and through our lives, particularly in our character transformation and our availability for advancement of the kingdom. It's right there. It's the last verse of verse 20 of the book. They went out preaching everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word that they had through the accompanying signs. That is a life worth living. In fact, that really is life. It's for that purpose that we're alive. That is the purpose of our life. That we would be under King Jesus. And our life, our actions, our words, our reactions would preach the gospel. The Lord would be working with us and through us, confirming what we declare as truth, with the accompanying signs. Our transformation is the greatest sign, like I said, but you know what? I'm all for major signs and wonders too. I'm all for, I'm all for whatever God wants to do. Man, I'd love to show up at a funeral and call someone back from the grave. That'd be incredible. I'd love to go to the cancer ward at Children's Hospital and raise the terminal. That'd be awesome. And if I couldn't, I wouldn't want to be that I didn't believe he could. We're the church. This ends here. But it just begins here, doesn't it? This is us.